0: Hey everyone, we'll get back to the podcast in a second, but first I have a new novel out, Holtman Arms. It follows Colvin Hall, an aspiring writer who decides to write a romance novel on a whim, sends it to a publisher, and it becomes a huge success. The only problem is, no one knows it's him because he writes under the pen name Mary Ballantyne. With all of the money and none of the fame, Colvin longs for the world to recognize his accomplishments. When he gets an opportunity to write a freelance article on a washed-up 90s pop star looking for a comeback, that recognition starts to come, but is it all he hoped for? It doesn't matter, because he's getting it whether he likes it or not. Holtman Arms is the second in my author's cycle after A Girl and a Gun, and like that previous novel, it explores themes of success and accomplishment in the 21st century. You can buy it now through Amazon in paperback or on Kindle. The link is in the podcast description. As always, thanks for your support. Welcome back to to the Director Video Connoisseur podcast. As always, this is Matt here, and I am joined once again by uh, Tom Joliffe, a screenwriter and uh, also uh, article writer for uh, Flickering Myth. But as a screenwriter, that's kind of mostly what we're here to chat with you about today because your newest movie, Renegades, is uh, out in the U.S. now, and then it will be out on January 30th in the U.K. Uh, Welcome back, Tom. Hi, Matt. Thanks
1: for having me on again
0: yeah I, I'm excited to chat with you about this. I think we we had planned for it possibly to coincide more with the US release, but then um, the the screener got, lot, got got sent to my spam folder. so I never I didn't get it in time. So it ends up working out that we can do it ahead of the UK release.
1: Yeah, I think well, that works out for me. That's all right. Perfect. I Perfect. haven't seen it by that point. so I've managed to see it in the meantime. Oh, yeah, so that helps. So, so that's an interesting
0: piece of this, right? That um, it's kind of a an interesting piece as a writer. That um, like if you write a novel or an article or an essay or anything like that, right? You get to see the finished product. But with a movie, you you write it, but you don't see, and you, you have to actually watch it to see what it looks like.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then you know you get an idea of how much is you know of what you wrote is left. So. Thankfully on this, um, you know, it's a fair amount, so I'm quite happy.
0: Yeah, I I had a hunch it probably was. And of course, you know, the previous film of yours that we talked about, uh, When Darkness Falls, obviously that one was was yours because it was more of a collaborative thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was kind of like, um, I guess, an associate producer on that one. So I was fairly hands-on. Yeah, less so on this one, but we spent uh, quite a lot of time in pre-production. Um, you know just going back and forth on the script so by the time it was ready to go I don't think you know logistically in these kind of productions you want to change too much anyway at the last minute because you know it could take time and it could eat into your schedule so yeah, yeah. yeah it was uh, yeah pretty much all there yeah,
0: well, that's great to hear. So, so maybe maybe we'll we'll kind of just get stuck in, and that might kind of be the first question that I have is maybe where where the story idea came up for, with, uh, or where um you know where where the story idea came from. But um yeah, why don't I, I'll do a quick synopsis for people that that aren't sure. I'm just going to go right from the IMDb one, just because uh, I think it's, that's easier because it. it it has the perfect amount of information, I think. Um, so uh, yeah, we have got a retired Green Beret soldier played by Lee Majors who's murdered um, by uh, an international gang uh, in London um, headed by Louis, Louis Mandalore. So um, his veteran SAS comrades, which are uh, Billy Murray, um, Ian Ogilvie, and Paul Barber, and then Nick Moran, who is the son of one of his comrades, they decide to go out and avenge his death. Um, And and that's really kind of where this this thing takes off is that they're they go and take down his this gang here. Um, And yeah, I I, for me, this movie was just as fun as as that description is with that with that cast and everybody. Uh, It was just a really great time.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we were going for. So it's very much the kind of movie that does what it says on the tin. Um, and we wanted to make the best of it with, you know, the cast as well It's always going to be, you know, a, a group of talent that's going to impress people, I think.
0: Yeah. And I think that's kind of the most important thing. I think with, with a movie like this, like, you know, obviously there's there's some budgetary constraints. Um, I think when, when people see it, there might be some areas where, like, for example, the the the, um, the CGI used for the or the the, uh, the shooting and the bullets and the um, the blood and, and the explosion and for me I'm okay with that if I've got a cast that's just a ton of fun to watch and a story that's just really simple and works and you know has elements that has depth to it and elements but the basic story of it is simple I think when it all comes together and works like that that's really what what I'm looking for in a movie
1: yeah I agree. I think what we really wanted to do is for the most part, we're you know I was writing around you know who was going to be playing particular characters, so I kind of wrote to their strengths, and you know it's about making the characters engaging, so you know we give them a platform and they can kind of add their magic to it
0: yeah well, maybe this is a good segue <clears throat> for maybe my my first question actually um in terms of the writing piece of it, uh, w- one of my favorite scenes is kind of right at the very beginning where we get Nick Moran having a, a nightmare about his time in, in Iraq, which was just a really, really powerful scene there. Uh, was that your idea? Was that that was that one that you you put together?
1: Um, it was kind of like a collaboration, really. I think we wanted to have something at the opening that was kind of visually interesting um, and could kind of kick us into kind of like what's going to happen in the in the present day so you know we kind of came up with this the you know the PTSD angle um and that kind of you know that really establishes his character from the beginning and then we can kind of go into where he's in the you know the group therapy session so that kind of makes sense um yeah so it kind of came maybe a few kind of drafts into the process where we weren't quite sure where you know how we would open the film. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really
0: great great way all around because I think it, it develops Nick Moran in a way that she's very like sort of like it it doesn't take a lot to, to unfold. It doesn't take a lot out of the plot that you need. For it. It, it, it happens really rather quickly, but it's very intense, and and it kind of gets you on his side. The other piece of it, though, I also liked. Um, again, here in the United States, and I don't know if this is similar in 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 the UK, but um, especially in the 70s with the Vietnam War, there was a, a kind of a reductive approach to uh, using PTSD, uh, which I don't. Even, it wasn't even called P- PTSD at that time, but this idea of sort of like the the broken, mentally broken soldier that could you know kind of be do 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 anything at any time maybe have delusions or uh, see hallucinations of the war that kind of thing and and it sort of just it it painted a bad picture of of veterans here in the US and, and it we kind of see it sometimes too i think with with the Iraq and Afghan war that again with especially direct to video movies that are working on a short script they don't have a lot to a lot of bandwidth to 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 handle it in a really great way and i think that's one thing that i appreciated about this use of of PTSD as part of the um of of Nick Murray's character is that it wasn't reductive like that, that it still kind of painted him as a a complete person.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the the whole thing with the the group sessions as well, that kind of, that has an element that, you know, he's trying to deal with that in a constructive way as well. And it also helps, you know, build that bond between the characters.
0: Yeah, which again, right, when when we get the plot point where, where Lee Major's character is killed, uh, it's kind of an obvious turn, right? That, that it doesn't take a lot of prodding for them to 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 want to do this. Which again, I think, when you're you know dealing with only you know a ninety minute movie, it's it's easy I think from a pacing standpoint to maybe put too much you know whatever in there, um, and 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 maybe weigh down the film. And, and is that something you're cognizant of as you're writing pages that like okay, I've I can't write this for too long because I could lose my audience.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's probably more, you know, something that Jonathan and Daniel were wary of because, you know, I, you know, I, I tend to kind of start big. So I might start with a hundred page draft and then we drew it back. I prefer doing that than the other way where if, you know, you come in at maybe 80 pages and you've got to start filling it because then if you're filling it, you are it feels a bit awkward. Rather, Whereas cutting back, I think, feels a bit more natural. So, you know, they're very on the money in terms of what you need to put into a 90-minute film. Um, so, you know, from that regard, it was a good learning process as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, it does work out really well. And it, that might be something, too, I know, because, you know, um, with, with director, uh, uh, you know, Daniel's a really, um, you know, I've, I've had some of his films on the site. And I think also, I don't know how much his the films uh, previous films of his that I've done on the site have been the kind of collaborative process that this was where he also has, you know, um, it's not like he's just sort of given a script by a line producer. And I guess in a lot of cases, he's the line producer in a lot of movies too, but it's, it's with the more collaborative process, I think it also kind of worked in his favor. It seemed like that he, he was able to hit certain pieces of it out of the park.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, he came on quite, so I came onto it in I think May, so it was sort of just around about the start of the the pandemic. Um, and i had been talking to Jonathan about the, the film and uh, it was kind of, it was a little bit more, I mean, it had Lee Majors was in it from the beginning. So he was kind of like nailed down because he's a good friend of um, Jonathan, Softcox. And, uh, you know, he was there and then quite a few of the other cast were there, Ian Ogilvie as well, who's worked with Jonathan in the past. Um, And then a few weeks after uh, Daniel came on board and that's when it kind of expanded and got a bit more international Um, just in terms of having we didn't make a big thing of you know the whole network that's beyond what's in our film with the villain so we have hints that there's a wider villain somewhere out in you know the ether somewhere but we didn't want to kind of bog that down either so we hinted at this kind of wider network which obviously, you know, that, you know, in a potential sequel that can come up maybe. Um, But we, you know, we try to keep it very tight. But yeah, Daniel kind of came in, he was very, you know, involved. And Jonathan was quite happy for, you know, Daniel to kind of have the final say because he's been there and done it and, you know, almost wrote the book on these kind of films. Uh, So, you know, we kind of went, we all sort of collaborated and then we sort of said to daniel right this you you know you've got the kind of final you know tick off i guess
0: yeah so with with that in mind right that he had that 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 final say um were you you um were you surprised or were you kind of expecting as much of your movie or of your script to end up in the movie
1: well i think you know what i would say probably 75 percent 80 percent of what i wrote is there there was a couple of things that so some of the actors would do a few ad libs here and there um nick moran in particular he probably made me look quite good actually <laughs> some <laughs> of his ad libs um no he you know he really kind of got into the character the other guys they uh, you know added their own kind of touch of uh, humor maybe uh cuz i you know we we had a bit of humor in the script from the get go but then sometimes, you know, an actor can bring their own kind of personality to it or their own kind of thoughts on the character. And it just kind of takes it off the page a bit more. Uh, so, you know, aside from a bit of ad-libbing, there was also a couple of structural things. So there's a bit towards the beginning where you were establishing Gorham's character uh, with like a sort of short montage and him kind of, you know, laying the law on some of his rivals. Uh, That came a little bit later in my script, but Daniel, via the edit, so this is another stage of, like, scripting, I guess, is when you're editing. Um, He brought that forward, and I think that was more effective that way, actually. So, again, i tip my cap off to someone who's been doing this for sort of nearly, you know, 25 years. Yeah,
0: right, because I think, didn't he intersperse the scene where where Louis Mandalore is sort of torturing the... uh... Some rival gang member. He interspersed it with the yes. element, oops, with the the scenes of um, Nick Moran uh, talking at the group session.
1: Yeah. So yeah, originally they would have come slightly after that, but yeah, I think I, you know establishing you know that his villainy, so you know right from the off as well. That that was more effective, I think.
0: Yeah, I thought that was really good there. And I also what I liked about it, too, is that, you know, Nick Moran kind of speaking about Nick Moran and his performance, you know, he's giving sort of an intense scene there where he's talking about his experience in the war and coming home uh, to sort of you know, convert to civilian life and the issues he's having there. And in an action movie, while it's intense, probably like. And and might work like in an you know sort of a indie art house film, you know, you might be coming and expecting it. But in an action movie, it's a different kind of intensity that you don't usually see. Whereas what Lewis Mandler is doing is your standard action movie, you know, baddie, you know, torturing somebody. And I think the way those two were mixed, it it kind of made the the Nick Moran piece feel a little bit more natural in an action movie for me. And so I I definitely like the way that, that, that those were juxtaposed
1: yeah for sure I mean that I I would imagine that was probably in uh, Daniel's thought process as well because you know you want to keep these things quite interesting rather than you know you could have like a whole long sequence where it's just the the uh, group session then you can go into the kind of montage of the criminals but then it might feel a little bit flat in both cases maybe so when where is he's mixed them together slightly um, it just keeps things interesting I think yeah
0: yeah, yeah, I, I thought that really worked. And, you know, you know getting back to Nick Moran, it, it feels like with, with the Shogun film, because, you know, he did, um, he did Nemesis as well, and it feels like he he's, he, the, he really relishes the roles that he's getting with Shogun because they're not the sort of standard, you know, guy in a suit at a pub who has a criminal network that he's, you know, whatever, you know, a lot of the, the, the movies that he does, he's, he's more of a gangster type character, um, more of a heavy and it seems like he's really enjoying sort of sinking his teeth into these parts.
1: Yeah, definitely. He's he's always been one of those really kind of underrated actors, I think. So, you know, he, he obviously got a big name for himself after Lockstock. And then for a while you, you, you end up getting offered just the same kind of things. Um, you know, he's popped up here and there in smaller parts and always been, you know, really interesting to watch. So I think it's good that he's had these more kind of substantial roles with Shogun. And, um, you know, as soon as we knew that Nick was going to be the lead in this, I was really happy um, personally. Because, you know, I've always found him really underrated. And, you know, I knew he would nail the role. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. I was... um,
0: I was writing up a um, review on a the Steven Seagal movie Gut Shot Straight," which is sort of a, a noirish film. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's a kind of a noirish thing. It's not really. I a, think
1: that's one I never quite got around to because he's sort of like a bit part, isn't he? Yeah, Seagal. exactly. Yeah. It's
0: almost like a Seagal completist kind of film because it's really not his movie, um, but it's got you know Stephen Lang in it. Um, it's a, it's a noirish film where Stephen Lang is a a, a rich guy in Vegas who. Gets, uh gets uh, actor Georgie, he gets uh, Georgie's his character to have sex with his wife. It's kind of one of those things. But I was looking up Stephen Lang, just kind of just, you know, seeing if I had reviewed another film on the site and a movie called The Proposal from 01 came up and that one had Nick Moran in a, in a big, uh, you know, a larger role. And that was kind of a reminder for me too, that it, he had um, a career previous to, um, you know, Lock, Stock and, and, and Two Smoking Barrels. You know, it was like, I guess it was around that time, but he was, you know he had roles that weren't just, um, uh, yeah, playing the heavy all the time. And but I think it was like one of those things where it was like for a DTV movie, um, it's easy to slap him on the tin and say, yeah, Nick Moran from from Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, you know, Vinnie Jones, Lock, Stock, and you know that kind of thing. Um, and it just, yeah, it feels like watching him in these these um, the the Shoguns from this one in particular. I think this one even more so because I think he had more to do here. Um, he just seems to really take. The, the material and re- really go for
1: it yeah and i think you know what he does is he does something that's kind of uniquely him with a, you know his line delivery and things like that he's got his own unique kind of style that really fits the character and makes the character come alive
0: yeah yeah i definitely agree with that and i i think i, I mean i was kind of hoping for i've kind of you know like a nemesis kind of gave me a um, uh, and if anybody out here is listening to that. It, Nemesis is another one that you should check out from Shogun. It's very, it's very different from this in the sense that it's more of a, a slow burn kind of film, where this is more of a, a traditional fun actioner. That I think, um, I think the way I described it on, on Twitter, I think when um, I posted the review and somebody commented, I think it maybe even um, the Shogun account had commented. But I was, you know, it's, it's, this is a kind of a movie that's made by action fans for action fans. I think it's the best way to sum up Renegades, whereas nemesis is more of a slow burn kind of uh taunt, uh kind of film
1: yeah definitely yeah i, I would agree with that and I'll, it's certainly on the you know action fans making an action film definitely
0: yeah yeah and i think <laughs> that's that's you know nick moran you know getting kind of a, a similar or a part that he can sink his teeth into still i think was was still really really great to see and then i think what i also really liked and from a a, a writing standpoint and a, and a performance standpoint was that okay we've got Nick Moran's character that's more of a serious character and, and he is well-rounded he's well he's three-dimensional because i think there's a problem with a lot of modern to video especially one that's produced here in the states um is that um it it's there's sort of this this idea of this sort of bearded, grimacing white guy, former Special Forces guy who is the hero and really has nothing going for him beyond that piece. And it's just sort of kind of slapped out there. And I think that could have been a trap too where, you know, we're, 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 with the hero here, because again, Nick Moran's bearded, he's white, he's grimacing, you know, all of those things, but he, he brings more to it to, and I, and I think also from a writing standpoint, adding in the scene at the beginning of the film where he has the nightmare, you know, the, the scenes of him uh, at the, you know, where he's at the session, um, the the group therapy session, I think it it brings it a little bit past that, which I appreciated. And then with the team of guys with him, they almost like kind of cut some of the the seriousness as well, where you've got Billy Murray, Ian Ogilvy, and, and Paul Barber having a lot of fun with it, which I, I really appreciated.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, part of what we wanted. We wanted that kind of that ensemble feel. Um, just like, the you know, those old classic adventure movies and, you know, these action ensembles where, you know, there's a bit of, um, you know, banter between the group also the con- you know the concept of these you know old guys in their 70s going up against the criminal gang um you know we wanted them to sort of acknowledge that it's um you know a bit far fetched themselves but you know they still go kind of you know they're quite happy to go out in a blaze of glory if necessary um so yeah we had a little you know there was a little bit of uh, sort of tongue in cheek there uh but we didn't want to be we didn't want to make it a you know a spoof so we still wanted to have it grounded and um you know just an enjoyable homage to those kind of old films yeah
0: cuz there is a kind of a fine line cuz i think again like a lot of times the way that, that this this kind of movie might be made in in other you know, DTV circles. And I think this is one of those areas where I think Shogun tends to zig and, and um, other uh, uh, studios kind of zag in this, this way is that there might be a tendency to make it all too serious. You know? And I think a lot of times in America, yeah. that kind of movie, it's like, okay, maybe Nick Moran's it's Nick Moran's wife and kids that are killed instead of like Lee Majors, his character. And then all of his buddies, his war buddies are like, Hey man, we're here behind you. We're going to take care of this. And there really isn't any of that fun element. Whereas here, you know, you've got, you know, I mean, all of these guys, of course, they all cared about Lee Majors, his character, and there's no point where they're like, you know, we're not doing this for, for, for this purpose. But you get these fun scenes of, you know, Billy Murray's character showing what weapons he has, and they're kind of these goofy different things. Or, um, the scene where they're doing surveillance at the club that, um, that Louis Mandelor owns, and it's Nick Moran and Paul Barber at the at the bar, are you know, getting a drink, and and even you know, those interactions were a lot of fun, and and you know, Ogilvy, of course, also a lot of fun too, and. Yeah, I just really appreciated that. Again, it was one of those things where it's it it seems like such a simple concept to have really fun, good guys and a really evil baddie and just watch them interact, but it doesn't always work. And in here it just worked really well.
1: Yeah, I mean, as a writer, I kind of try try my best to give them the platform to do that. So, you know, we have these fun scenes and we have like you know fun moments where they, you know, they they're quite aware of how old they are. I think, you know, you get some of these films maybe where, you know, Sylvester Stallone, you know, as much as I love him, they never quite acknowledge maybe that, In you know, some of them they do, but they don't always acknowledge that he's, you know, 75 and it's a little bit far-fetched maybe. But, you know, I think he, this was important that we wanted to kind of acknowledge acknowledge that, not make fun of it, but still find ways where it felt, you know, logical and how they approached how they were going to take down uh, Lewis Mandalore.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I I think that it it, it all worked on that scale, right, that it was um, that, yeah, that they they, while they were talking about how old they were and how they hadn't really done anything like this in a while um, there was also that sense of like yeah, but we we can pick it back up, or we can do it. Um, and and again, I think there was elements like like Nick Moran's character kind of resigning himself to this idea that this is this is all I'm good at, um, which is kind of almost a sad piece of it, where he's you know, he, but also kind of a thing where it's like yeah, he's just gonna go in there and get after it and do what he needs to do. Um, whereas for the other guys, they're kind of like um, yeah, we're getting the band back together almost. You know, it's like a, a reunion tour or something like that, which was a uh, it the way that they played that out was just a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's almost like the Stones getting back together to do like a, you know, a big concert again. Maybe they're not quite as good as they were, but then people start underestimating them or they, you know, their expectations go right down. Um, and then they come out and surprise you. So it's kind of like that element really, where, you know, the the police never really kind of until it's, you know, a lot later on, they never really identify these old guys as potential suspects because they think, well, you know, what are they gonna do? And you know it kind of dawns on uh, Goran a little bit too late as well. You know who's taking down his organization. Yeah, and yeah, I thought even that was a great element too. And I
0: think maybe this kind of gets into this piece that you talked about, where where, when um, Daniels really gets involved, um, now he's able to bring Michael Michael Pare and. Danny Trejo in, and you're you're kind of tasked with writing some some extra scenes for them, and one that I really liked was how you got Michael Pare into this. Or is it a Pare or Paré? I can't never know the proper pronunciation. Um, but but yeah, um, but but that was one. Um, you know, where where you kind of have this scene with Janine Narissa Sothcott where she's talking to him on the phone. Um, and and I, I really appreciate it. Was that sort of an idea that you had to maybe give her character a little bit more in 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 bringing him in.
1: Yeah, I think it, so what it was, it was a little bit of kind of fortune, I guess, that, um, you know, Daniel's probably got quite a long list of contacts on his phone, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, you know, we are kind. I think in, in, in the States, there was just a gap between coming out of, um, you know, lockdown restrictions before going back in again. Um, and then it just so happened that, you know, these guys were available. So Trejo had like an afternoon free. Uh, Michael Perret had a day free. And then uh, uh, Tommy Lister, who sadly passed away a few a few weeks after he actually he filmed his role, sadly. So it was probably his last role. Um, so, yeah, they just happened to have an availability. Daniel was there and he could shoot. You know, he had the, the means to shoot so we kind of added something in quite you know quickly and again because i know i'm writing for danny trejo i can write something that suits him Um, and the same with um, lister and the same with puree so yeah it's just writing to their strengths and then obviously um it was. It made sense to you know give uh, Janine's characters you know a little bit more in the film as well because I kind of liked that little sideline that she has with uh, uh, Paul Kennedy who pe- plays her partner in the film. It's almost like a reference to these old like British TV cop shows that you know used to be really popular in the sort of the eighties and nineties. Uh, one of which Billy Murray was really famous for called The Bill. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, so it's our kind of like little reference to that as this sideline that's happening, you know, concurrently with the film.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciated that too, because so the thing I liked about um Janine's character in this was that she it, it it like you said, it's that kind of a character, and there's sort of two ways that it can be played in a movie like this, where it's like her and her partner are always one step behind the 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 heroes, and they're kind of almost like kind of fumbling through the film. Or when we get the scene with with Michael Pare, where Michael Perret is giving her the background on who these guys are, um, who the you know the the, the gang is that, that's going after Louis Mandel, or who our heroes are, it's almost like she kind of makes a conscious decision where she's saying, okay, I could arrest all these guys, and they're probably not going to kill me, right? They're they're the good guys. If I go in and say you're you're, you're getting arrested, they aren't going to kill me, but if 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 I do that, I, I don't have the goods on Lewis Mandelor. Cause we've already had that scene established, right? Where she goes to yeah. question him about Lee Majors' his death and, you know, realizes he's got an alibi, he's got all that. So he's just gonna keep doing this. So it's almost like she makes a conscious decision to see if this gang can pull it off. I mean, she even asks Michael Paré, can they do this? Could they, could they, they make this work? And I, I like that because it it gave her character a little bit more agency. As a detective and as a police, you know, as, as a cop. and it wasn't kind of just this sort of bumbling um two steps behind character. And even at the very end, right, the way she questions the the, the the heroes about what happened, she's almost giving them their alibi sarcastically, but also like in a way to be like, I you know, okay, we're we're okay. And then of course we see the scene at the very end of. you know they're they're kind of together. So, yeah, I, I really appreciated that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we wanted to make, you know, a lot of the characters here quite interesting, give them something to do. Um, you know, we didn't want her just to be sort of appearing every now and again, not really contributing to the plot. So that was very important. And obviously Janine is, you know, someone who is running her own company, essentially. So, you know, she wants her roles to be interesting and stand out as well. So, you know, It made sense for her to be the one kind of engaging with Michael Perret and then we could kind of hint at a little bit of past between them as well, um, which, you know, gives it another kind of interesting element as well. Um, But yeah, I just think, you know, it was almost opportunism just, you know, to get them in. We filmed those portions. Those those portions were filmed out in the States. Um, about six months before the actual main bulk of the shoot, which happened in the UK.
0: Yeah, I I really liked your approach to getting those scenes in because it it almost kind of felt like almost like in a video game where the characters have like side areas to get information or something like that. And, and so it, it, I actually kind of appreciated the way it put it, because I think sometimes when this kind of thing happens, um, as you're describing, sometimes that scene feels like it was <clears throat> tacked on or the scenes were tacked on or kind of just sort of put in there. It's like, oh, you know, we've got to get Danny Trejo in here. So we'll just have our main character. Meet him at a bar and, and, you know, or whatever. Whereas this was almost like, you know, Ian Ogilvie is going to get more information. So he goes to Danny Trejo to get more information or, you know, uh, Janine Nerissa Southcott, she needs more information. So she calls Michael Perret, who, like you said, there's like a, a kind of a pass there. And I, I kind of appreciated that, that approach to it, as opposed to just like, it didn't feel like it was tacked on. It felt like almost like in a video game, you're going on a side quest to get extra information or to, 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 get an extra piece that you need to to solve the the game.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we wanted it to feel kind of seamless when it was all put together. Um, And again, it's a a more interesting way than maybe, um, you know, if you don't have the likes of these guys, you know, you can sort of start getting too far away from your main plot line by having, you know, her having to try and find this information out other ways. And then you're wasting a lot more screen time doing that Whereas, you know, you can get Michael Perret in and then it's quite it's uh, an efficient way to do it. And obviously you've got the star power as well. Yeah. And it felt almost like he liked the role
0: better than I think some of the roles that he might be given in a similar circumstance. Like he seemed to be enjoying playing this this CIA operative that uh, is out on a mission who then uh, gets the phone call from her and which I, I also appreciate. I think sometimes with that kind of a role, sometimes I don't want to say the actor mails it in, but they kind of work to the material. And he, he seemed to really enjoy this part.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, he, he's worked with Daniel a few times, I believe. So um, he obviously enjoys working with Daniel. He enjoys, you know, interacting with Jonathan as well. And I'm sure that won't be the last time he appears in, in a Shogun film.
0: Yeah, that'd be <laughs> me, that'd be nice to, to see him in more. You guys, but I I definitely liked. I mean, the same thing with with Danny Trejo. I mean, I've seen Danny Trejo in similar circumstances and movies. I mean, I, I I think of the movie Acceleration, where um, Zerilli uh, uses him in a similar way, where he's just I think he's like a um a, a mob boss or something that the main character uh, Natalie Byrne goes to kill, and um, and so it's kind of a similar thing. And I think it was actually kind of a similar sort of seamless thing there too, where where he was. I think that movie for me, I think was almost like flipped. Um, versus this movie where this movie had a very simple premise and then pieces were added that gave it more depth, whereas Acceleration had a more complicated premise because they were trying to work out this deal between Dolph and uh, Natalie Burns' character and it kind of almost weighed the movie down and it was almost like they had to find ways to make it lighter or make it easier. And I think kind of like to your point about, it's easier to kind of start from a simpler thing and, and, and add depth than it is to go the other way around.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, a lot, you know, in, in cinema and, you know, on the big screen and things like that, it seems like audiences are coming back to this idea that they want kind of simple ideas again. I mean, if you look at Top Gun, it's a you know really simple idea, but obviously they've nailed the execution. Um, so, you know, that was kind of our thinking that we don't want to get kind of bogged down. I mean, if you're looking at, say a lot of the the Steven Seagal films of maybe like 10, 15 years ago, there would would always be these subplots with like the CIA and they would sort of weigh the film down. and The film would kind of veer off in these directions to kind of try and make these, you know, side plot lines coherent. And then you you kind of get the idea that maybe in post they've cut 10 minutes off and then left a load of plot holes. So, you know, we wanted just, you know, simple revenge story um, but to make you know engaging characters that would make it watchable. Yeah, yeah, and to that point too, I think when when you know like thinking about like
0: Steven Seagal movies, for example, I know that Daniel really has done some. I think um, Asian Connection was one that, that I know of that he did with Seagal. And I think, you know, when you when you have someone like a Seagal, there's a set of limitations that already come with it right because he only does certain things he'll only kind of manage you know and his characters need to be depicted in certain ways and so i think sometimes that is yeah. where like you know a script maybe you know um um a, a friend of mine um a, a sean malloy who does a podcast i must break this podcast i had him on to talk about um i think it was against the dark was that the seagal one where he fought they fought vampires yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, he was joking that it was like somebody had this script for this movie, and then apparently, and then after the fact, they got Seagal attached to it, and so they had to sort of add him in. And he was like, "It's like this idea of like you're you've got this really great catering job, and then you're told by the the people the the, the um the the account that you need to put pineapple in every dish, and suddenly you sort of like <laughs> a you know it kind of changes the whole yeah. thing." And and I think kind of like with, with like with what happened here, where it's like. Yes, you're, you're writing the script, but then, you know, Jonathan Sothcock can come to you and say, hey, we've got Michael Perret, we've got uh, Danny Trejo, we've got Tiny Lister, you know, and, and you're able to sort of add it as opposed to like you have just submitted this script and then you're on to your next thing. And they've got to figure out what to do with it now that they've got these new, new, uh, new actors attached.
1: Exactly. And, you know, they were all kind of, you know, conducive to wanting to work within the film, so they, you know, everyone kind of brought their A-game and they were, you know, really interested in doing something with their roles. I think, you know, from my point of view as a fan, I really enjoyed, you know, so um, Jonathan and Daniel came to me and said, right, we've got uh, Danny Trejo and we want you to write, you know, a couple of scenes with him. You know, to me, that's a joy because I've been, you know, a fan of his for like 30 years watching his films. So, you know, it was the same for pretty much all the main cast in the film. um, I had some kind of pre-existing fandom for them. So I feel also, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily feel that where a role might be written for someone and they just put a name attached to it. But it doesn't feel like it fits them sometimes. Or maybe that the writers or producers kind of understand what makes it, you know, what makes a character work for Danny Trejo. So, yeah, from my perspective, it was a joy kind of writing for these guys um, and, you know, doing things that felt like it fit their, you know, their persona.
0: Yeah, yeah, because that was something I I, I don't know what your thoughts were on this, but I almost as I was watching um, Renegades and I saw um, Michael Peret's part in the film, I almost had a thought of like, well, how would another studio perhaps have done you know handle this situation and one thought that came to my head was that they may have taken Janine's character as a detective whittled it down so it's just really a detective behind a desk and given that kind of a part to parade and that's where you start to get the unevenness right because now you've taken a role that has multiple scenes that are out in, you know in the field interacting with people and you've now sort of had to 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 mitigate it somehow and that's where maybe they start adding on um scenes almost like to what you're talking about the the you know going trying to go from 80 to 90 pages as opposed to 100 to 90 um that they're now adding pages and now you get scenes that go on too long Um, i think again uh, bruce willis is another situation where where you know uh that janine's character i think it's the movie um acts of violence i think it's the movie where yeah it's almost a similar idea and and Bruce Willis does, I think, essentially have uh, Janine's character, and and I remember watching the, the trailers, thinking like, oh, he's going to be in this a lot, and then when I watch it, he's actually not in it a lot. Um, and I think that's another area where I think where where Shogun zigs that um, other you know um, studios are zagging because instead of taking that approach of like, okay, Michael Perret can play the detective, so let's just whittle this part down and give him the few scenes, and he'll just be sitting behind a desk with a badge on his you know pinned to his, his lapel or something like that. It said you've got, you know, Janine doing the part where she's bringing a little bit of edge to a role that doesn't always have edge to it, which I liked. Um, also, you know, with the, the sort of the gender roles in the movie, just because of the fact that Louis Mandelaar's character is into white trafficking, you've got that element of sort of like women being helpless and needing to be rescued that just, just is inherent in that. Um, and then also, I think, you know, Patsy Kensit's character is just going to have to be the damsel in distress at the end. It's just sort of how the the story's going to shake out. So to have a woman in the role who's very strong, who has an edge to her, who can kind of go back at um, Louis Mandelore's character when, when she's um, interrogating him, I thought that was really something that the movie didn't necessarily need, but I think it really helped the movie and gave it something that I didn't know it needed, I guess is maybe the, the way to look at it. And so, yeah, I really appreciated that kind of thing where it's like, okay, Parade gets a whole separate set of uh, pages as opposed to, maybe adapting another character to it. And then Janine can take a role that movies generally don't put a lot into, and she can put more into it and also give the film depth.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think this is something that, you know, Janine consciously wants to do in the, the, you know, the Shogun canon, really. Um, to you know, to have, you know, interesting female roles in the films, whether it's played by her or not, or played by someone else.
0: Yeah, because I mean, I mean, you know, Nemesis, going back to Nemesis, I, I, you know, I really liked her gangster's wife character. And again, like you said, like she makes the character more compelling than just simply the gangster's wife. Um, and, yeah. and again, she, she brought some edge to that that really made that whole home invasion piece really, really work on a level that, you know, that I, I don't think it necessarily would have. And here it's like, yeah, this this role didn't have to be as fleshed out as she made it. It didn't have to it. It, it would have worked if, if, if she was just the, the bumbling cop who's always two steps behind and doesn't know who these guys are and, and is completely in the dark the whole time. And then just shows up at the end and cleans up the mess and, you know, maybe gets credit for the bust or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it would have worked if that was the case because everything else was so much fun, right? That our, our heroes were so much fun. Um, our baddie was so bad. Um, it, but the fact that she was able to do that just gives the movie just a little bit more
1: yeah no I, I, I agree yeah so I think um it just makes it a little bit more interesting as well yeah and
0: and I guess for you so when you were writing like that part for example did you know that that part was going to go to her or was it is it more like when you have the script fleshed out in that sense they kind of go through and see like what part might work for her and what part might work for some of the other people
1: and I said that that was written from the beginning for for Janine but I think, you know, as soon as we got into, you know, getting Peray into the film as well, um, <clears throat> and then Stephanie Beecham came in as the, the kind of like the superintendent as well. So there was some quite, you know, nice elements between, you know, her and Peray and then her and uh, Stephanie Beecham as well, which kind of fleshed out her role, you know, where, where for the rest of it, she's kind of like chasing uh, the criminals down. So I think, you know, it it just fleshed things out a bit. So when Daniel kind of expanded things a little bit, um, it just, you know, took things down this interesting new arc, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I I
0: think, you know, also thinking about her scene where she's interviewing Louis Mandelore's character and we get to kind of see that that edge that she brought to Nemesis where she's sort of going back and forth with him. And but and then of course there is that that mo- part of it that I think that she also brings to it or you know from a writing standpoint as well this idea that like the police can't do exactly um, what they want but even then it's like there's that scene where she and her partner are kind of going through the aftermath of the um, shootout that happens in in Louis Mandler's nightclub where a bunch of his guys get taken out by our heroes and. Um, they're kind of trying to figure out who would have done that. And her comment about the fact that, well, we, it wasn't us cause we weren't anywhere nearby or something like that. Meaning like, <laughs> you know, who else would be capable of doing that if it's not us as the cops who are, are trained to be able to take these guys down. Um, it kind of also gives you that sense that like, she wants to do this to him, right? She wants to be the one to, to take out Mandalore, but she just can't.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, so you've, you've got that kind of wall of the law, which she has to kind of um, adhere to. Uh, but she still has that option to kind of take a step back. So once she realizes and once she's kind of given the intel by Parade, she kind of takes that choice, doesn't she? So she kind of takes her, her foot off the gas a little bit and just gives the the old boys a chance to do, you know, work their magic.
0: Yeah, which I, I really, really like to get it. As I was saying that, I like that it, It's a conscious choice that she's making as opposed to always being two steps behind. Now she's out in front. Now she has everything she needs to know where all the pieces are. And she makes that conscious decision. I thought that was a really great choice to give her character more agency as opposed to just always, you know, sort of showing up at the scene, trying to figure out what happened after the fact.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: Um, now, one other area that I want to, because I want to get into Louis Mandalore a little bit um, with, with his character. Now, when you were writing his character, same thing was it one of those things where like, okay, we've got Louis Mandalore attached, so we'll make him an Aussie and make his you know, kind of make him play up on that 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 part of because um, you know, he's originally from Australia, um, or was that character already sort of created and then it was like, okay, we'll we'll bring in Louis Mandalore and 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 have him play it.
1: So I think what we were going to do, there was a you know a few people that we looked at um and you know part of it was always also down to availability so once we kind of figured out it was lewis Mandelor, we can we turned the character into an australian so what we wanted with the the gang itself was to be um you know we wanted this idea that it's fairly cosmopolitan rather than just saying maybe you know it's a gang of albanians because then that you know it might come off as looking a little bit Uh, Xenophobic maybe, so if we have this cosmopolitan gang, um, it's a bit more interesting that way, I think. And then having him as an Australian, you know, he's still a little bit of an outsider, but then he kind of, he still knows, you know, how everything works and he's, you know, there's a similar mentality um, in certain regards with, you know, Australians and the Brits. So, you know, he's kind of got that international flavor uh, but he still fits in the landscape as well. Oh, well, yeah, that's
0: kind of cool to know that that was a, a conscious decision, because I was as I was watching the movie, I was thinking like having him as an Aussie and having him you know, be from a, a Commonwealth country like that, that it was like he could be an outsider. But there's always, like you said, that xenophobia um, that's inherent sometimes in the the outsiders coming in to an area. And by having it him be an Aussie, like you said, having the gang be more cosmopolitan as well, where it's not just like you said, just Albanians or you know, in the United States, I think I've seen you know, with with certain Zagal movies or, or Bruce Willis or whoever, where it's like a Mexican gang or African American gang, and it just plays up on all these really horrible tropes that just you know, um, yeah, that just they just make it worse, and I think. You, you kind of fall into that trap when you want to, because you want to have the gang of outsiders that are coming in sort of invading turf. And um, again, with Danny Trejo's character, where he's talking about how, yeah, this isn't how gangs usually operate in London. There's usually a, a code that they follow, but these guys aren't following it. Um, yeah, it's like you, you could kind of unpack it from all of those, those, those bad tropes. And like you said, the xenophobia and all of that by having... Louis Mandel being an Aussie but yet you still get that feel of the outsider invading and these guys kind of protecting the turf that that I really appreciated
1: yeah and I think it becomes more about you know attitudes and things rather than you know national identities you know that in that sense of invading so it's like this old school sensibility um you know you know tradition and values that it kind of goes through London that even in you know the past with some of the the you know criminal organizations they always had this kind of sense of family i guess so even like the mafia has that you know as much as they're doing all this you know criminal stuff they have this sense of family and code um so it's this new kind of gang coming over and they kind of they almost don't play by the rules even though you're you're in a game where you break rules you know there's still these you know overriding rules that everyone kind of you know wants to play to um and then you know from the the perspective of having characters like uh tiny lister um that you know hints at this wider expanded world so the other kind of side of the network that's spread over in europe or spread over in the states um that kind of expands that network even more of the you know the criminal organization so i think it was more interesting to do it that way than you know like you say just have eastern europeans or mexicans or you know the you know targeting one specific group of people and kind of doing bad representations yeah yeah it it it, it, it definitely again it
0: it, what it does is it it kind of takes a movie that's fun and keeps it fun, I guess, that there's no feeling in it. Yeah. And I guess, you know, in the 80s, maybe you don't think about or whatever in the past. You know, not everybody thinks about some of these things. But I think it yeah, it it, it sort of keeps that that element there, um, which I, I mean, I kind of it's funny for Louis Mandelore. I kind of was I don't want to say I felt felt bad for him, but it's like you know, he plays such a great baddie, which I liked. But he also I think there's almost sometimes a tendency with, with people who play the baddie to really, really do it up and, and have a lot of fun. And sometimes it, it almost it almost hurts the movie in a way because you start to like the baddie and you know, um, and you can't, always, you can't always root for the heroes or something like that. And I think his baddie that he plays is so ruthless that yes, he's he's great to watch, but there's never a point where I was like, yeah, you know, I you know he's kind of cool. I kinda like what he's doing there. It's always like, no, I want to <laughs> see him get his comeuppance, which I think yeah. that's always an important piece as well.
1: Yeah. I mean you know, when I was writing that character, it was always pretty much along those lines. Um, and I kind of had, you know, Gary Oldman in the professional in mind when I was sort of thinking about the role. You know, that type of, you know, villain who's, you know, he's played with a bit of flair and he's quite, you know, big in the performance. But, you know, he's also he's someone that you want to see taken down as well. And then once Lewis Mandelor came came onto the script we could sort of touch things up a bit and you know i was really happy from that perspective because again he's one of those he's this character actor who's really kind of underrated yeah i completely
0: agree there because he i mean recently he's sort of been getting some bigger parts like with you know jesse v johnson's been using him more and and so he's been getting those and I mean it's funny because you look at his his CV and IMDb he he works a lot like almost on that sort of like uh, Eric Roberts level, but he doesn't do sort of the Eric Roberts like you know one and done kind of things like he's really in the movies but um yeah I I agree with you there I mean his he has a very small part in Avengement but I think of like the the two um. Uh, debt collector movies that he did with um where he's he's interacting with uh with, with scott Atkins. they had really great chemistry and so when i saw that he was attached um i i was excited to see what he did i, I but like i always kind of feel back because it's like seems like everybody else is having fun as the heroes and then he has to be the bad guy <laughs> that like everybody dumps on um in the movie but i guess you know everybody's got to play a part right everybody's going to kind of take one for the team yeah. i guess
1: yeah i mean you know i enjoyed the quirks that they kind of added to the character and which I'm sure you know, Lewis brought and sent an element of that to his performance as well, That where he's really kind of, he's bringing in his own kind of sense of flair to it, but also in terms of the costuming and things like that. So he's got some quite quirky costumes in this, which are pretty cool. Um, I think there's one sort of, he's pretty much wearing something a little bit odd throughout, and I kind of think, oh, I quite like that shirt. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so I think you know he's quite an interesting character on a visual standpoint, just because of you know what he's wearing and how he's playing the role. And he's quite you know, uh, he's chewing the scenery, but I think in a good way. I think you need a you need you need a bit of that in some of your villains.
0: Yeah, I think it's it, what what's great about it is he does it to the right degree, I think, and I think it's you know it's part writing, part how the character is written, and part how he plays it, where he. You know, I, I think there's almost a sense for I think for people who I think for actors in particular, when they're playing baddies, they almost they because it's their character, they start to kind of I don't want to say fall in love with it, but they because it's their character, they 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 treat it in a way that's almost like it's 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 special to them. And they they don't want to see that baddie get their comeuppance or they want it to be they almost want to like the character because it's their character. And I think, you know, he does a, a good job of playing a, of, of walking the tightrope, I, I guess you could say, where he's 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 giving it enough flair that it it's i don't know it it borders on fun, but it's just not quite fun. like he's still enough of a bad guy that um when he's in a scene, it's what what's bad that he's going to do in the scene um even if he's he's bringing some flair to it, it's like what is the menace there that, that that's going to happen, which I, I appreciate it,
1: yeah, I mean that you know that was what we were going for, so we, we always wanted to be conscious of even if he's, he's got some good lines and he's got, you know, the costume and everything. We wanted to pull it back and have him, you know, quite clearly he's, um, he's a menace to the the whole city.
0: Yeah. And I, I always joke, it's almost like, um, with, with human trafficking, it's almost what I, what I always call baddie in a can, right. That's like, you just, um, I think there's a few types of bad guys that are just, you're, you don't have to really develop them as bad. It's just evil, what they're doing. I think, you know, yeah, um, human trafficking, I think poaching animals, uh, animal poaching, I know like a Ring of Fire 3, I always think of with uh, down the Dragon, where um, there's, yeah. you know, animal, people that are trapping animals illegal, of course, they're always going to be bad. So so it's like almost like there isn't a lot to develop as a baddie there. But then also, I think sometimes I think from, from a writing standpoint and from a filmmaking standpoint, that. It, it almost sometimes engenders a lazy aspect where it's like, well, okay. I mean, how can you like somebody who's hu- doing human trafficking, right? They're a horrible person. So of course they're, they're bad. Um, whereas here, you know, he was developed enough that he he wasn't like a one note baddie um, and he wasn't like just baddie in a can. It wasn't just like, okay, he's a human trafficker. Nobody's going to like him anyway. Um, like you said, he played it with some flair. And I think the character it's, it, uh, himself had had elements to it that, made his scenes compelling enough that you want to watch him interacting with the other characters?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I like to think I I gave uh, Lewis a platform and then, you know, I knew that once it comes to delivering the performance that he would nail it. Yeah. And I wonder,
0: too, to some extent, too, because, I, I, you know, I, I, you know um, maybe, maybe they, the, the actors themselves would know better with this, but it's almost like I think it felt like in a lot of cases with a lot of the, the actors working here in this in this film that they they just liked having a role that they could sink their teeth into and and do something different with um, that they don't always get that. A lot of times it is sort of like, OK, this person's attached. Let's adapt a role for them as opposed to, you know, we've got this this part that that we want them to really run with.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that's sometimes a benefit as well of, you know, having such a, a star-studded cast that you don't really want to waste anyone. I mean, you could have maybe, you know, if you replace seven or eight of the the big name cast in this and then have kind of unknown actors, there might be a tendency that you kind of underwrite the roles or you you kind of dismiss the roles slightly. Um We tried our best, obviously, and I tried my best not to do that with anyone, really, that has a kind of, you know, fairly significant part. But because, you know, you're writing for, you know, Paul Barber or Billy Murray or Ian Ogilvie, you kind of know what their strengths are, how to make the best of them and, you know, what to give them that they can really sink their teeth into so that they can make their role, even if they're not necessarily in it throughout the whole film, where they can just stand out.
0: Yeah, because yeah, I think it's probably a really great example of like Paul Barber, who's, who's whose character is, or I guess, like really the, the the three guys, Paul Barber, uh Ian Ogilvie has a little bit more just because his character interacts with Danny Trejo. But um, yeah, the three of them aren't aren't in it a lot, but it feels like when they're in the movie, they're really just sort of furthering this vibe or this tone of of this really fun aspect that I think. Like you said, they're making the most of every scene that they're in. And it just, yeah, it just felt like every time I wanted, every time they were on screen, I wanted to see them on screen. I think maybe it's the best way to describe it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, certainly, you know, it was very much in our mind that we wanted it to be kind of enjoyable. You know, revenge films can get dark and they can get moody and they can kind of go down this path where, you, you know, you don't always have to do, the fun version. You don't always have to do the the deftly serious version, but we kind of wanted to find this perfect balance where, you know, we still had a bit of intensity, uh, but we still had a sense of fun with it as well. So that was the important aspect. I think that's what a lot of the reviewers have picked up on. Really, that they really kind of like the engagement between the renegades themselves
0: yeah because it, it does lift this beyond sort of your your standard revenge movie and i think that's that's probably the most important thing is that i think it's one of the things when when you're especially with you know um make, making movies on on a budget you know having to sort of you know limited release or or direct to video is you know what what can be done in that limited space to to make something more fun and more compelling I think this was, I mean, I, I want to say, I don't want to say it's, a, it's an easy choice because, again, you've got to get the names and you had to have the, the writing down. And, and you know, uh, Daniel's really kind of recognizing where it's working and and putting it together. Um, so it, it all has to come together for sure. But I do sometimes wonder if, because I, I feel like there's almost like more of a cynical approach to a lot of direct-to-video making where it's just sort of like, let's just get the names on the tin and get the movie out there. And I think, this approach here, where where it's you know, Shogun Films doesn't make a bunch of movies. They're not pumping out like five to ten movies a year. They can uh, put more time into these little aspects of it, and and you know, sort of also get the 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 actors involved invested in a way that we we get something that's a little bit more special than than what you might normally see.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the company would be a you know slightly more prolific uh under you know the the right circumstances i think you know renegades itself was pushed back a few times because of covid um even you know when it you know when it got made it was still kind of at this time where we'd just come out of lockdown restrictions so you know they were quite limited still in you know choice of locations availability they were kind of limited on you know the crew they had so you know things like um the fact that you know a lot of the action is done with uh cgi for example is because you're kind of limited by your locations you, you you know they didn't really have the resources to kind of at that time go and you know maybe do a set somewhere that you could completely destroy so you're kind of limited to the fact that you need to use cgi um you're limited by your choice of locations so yeah it's been sort of difficult and we're now just sort of 2022 has kind of seen everything starting to come back it's just been a slower process in the UK than it would be out in the states where I think they've almost in terms of like you know your your you and furlers and everyone like that they're kind of kicking into full gear again I think you know we're just getting to that point now so it should sort of you know Obviously, you know, you don't want to oversaturate, so you don't want to be doing five or six a year, but, you know, maybe two or three. Um, And hopefully there'll just be a bit more freedom now that there's no more restrictions.
0: Yeah, you know, that's something I never considered. And maybe two uh, people in the American audience listening to this probably also didn't consider because, um, yeah, what Emmett you know, Furler Oasis were able to do is they were able to go to red state. You know, we was talking in America about red states and blue states, where um, you know, the, the red states are more conservative, and you know, uh, conservatism sort of was not as concerned with with COVID restrictions, which um, you know, you, you say what you want for the people living in those <laughs> those states that may have had higher fatality rates and all of that kind of thing, but what it meant for action film watchers was that yeah, like you know, um. You, you could still pump out five movies a year if you went to, like, for example, Georgia. That's where I think Emmett Furlough Oasis, they work a lot out of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. Um, so three, like, kind of deep south um, red states that that really didn't have as many restrictions. Um, and so they kind of took advantage of that fact and went and shot in those places to get those movies made. Whereas, yeah, in, in the U.K., you don't have that ability. There's not the same kind of regional um discrepancies in 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 restrictions it's sort of like what the you know the entire uk is going to have one set of 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 regulations i think and um yeah so that is probably something that i didn't really consider about the fact that um when working in certain locations in 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 the uk right that if you're limited you can't always like you said shoot them up and, and set up the scenes and stuff like that
1: yeah i mean it was also a case of you know the choice of locations was you know a little bit more sparse and you know you start having to ask for favours but then obviously these could be locations that aren't necessarily always coming from like a film background so it might be in one and location that doesn't generally get used in film a lot so you, you can't just go and wreck someone's place <laughs> <Right>. um <laughs> much as you'd like to right. uh but you know it was coming at this time there was just a hesitance that a lot of uh former locations and maybe even airbnbs that would be used as locations they were kind of hesitant that they didn't want film sets and production crews back yet even though the restrictions had kind of come off so there was still this you know like six month a year hangover that we've probably only just really fully got over where you know places are opening fully up again and welcoming, welcoming film crews back so You know, the UK is naturally smaller anyway, so, you know, already you've got a bit less choice. Uh, so yes, so hopefully with, you know, everything kind of lifted and back to normal. Um. And, you know, investment and, you know, production companies a little bit more. Uh, you know, there's, there's always a hesitance when, you know, suddenly someone turns off the money, the money pump, you know, when everything stops that once it turns back on again, you know, they're a little bit hesitant to kind of put money into things. You know, they want absolute sure bets. So, yeah, uh, you know, I think we'll see, you know, maybe getting to a point where Shogun does, you know, two or three a year. Yeah, that makes sense. And
0: and I guess I didn't think of it too, like when we talked about When Darkness Falls, that, you you know, that was such a smaller production that you could find Airbnbs um that would allow you to to shoot in there because you didn't have this huge crew that was going to be there you weren't blowing anything up there was you know there's a few there's some shooting right um and some yeah. some but it's not like at the scale of like an action movie of like you know four guys coming in fully loaded and 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 shooting up the place
1: yeah definitely i mean, I mean you know from that point of view we actually um benefited from you know the restrictions it was just between um you know full lockdowns i think they narrowly avoided you know one lockdown after you know so they found the perfect window it was a small crew anyway so you they were underneath the the restriction barrier that he had they just you know made sure that they kept distance and masks and everything but you know they did benefit from that because they had um you know their location was also their base um you know there was a lot of outdoor locations, so again, you're kind of outdoors, you're making the most of that landscape, and it's you know it plays a part in the film. And uh, you know, that that was a, a rare time where you could kind of benefit from that. And then obviously, <clears throat> some of the locations were a little bit cheaper just for the fact that you know they were happy to kind of have someone you know actually giving them some money at that point because. You know for the uk like a lot of places you know just the economy shut down for months on end yeah and i
0: imagine probably up in the, the scottish highlands right they weren't getting the tourist trips um that they would expect whereas like yeah obviously like, like in london it's a little bit of a different vibe where um they don't need the money as as badly or you know people are still probably traveling to london for you know business reasons um you know being obviously like a probably, you know, the financial capital of Europe, I think, that, um, you know, those Airbnbs in, in London were still getting people going to them because people had, still had to travel out of necessity and things like that.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, they, you know, like I said, they were just limiting themselves to, you know, commuters and people staying for, um, you know, meetings and things. They didn't want anyone beyond, you know, two or three people in a room, so they they were just basically completely nixed Uh, film crews and film productions. But I think, you know, from the perspective of When Darkness Falls, we also really benefited because at the time, people weren't really kind of flocking out after lockdown immediately, so they were still kind of being quite cautious. And then, you know, we we wanted expansive shots with no one in, you know, frame, no tourists and things, so we were kind of like... We we kind of benefited from the fact that there was no one there. We could kind of play on that that kind of open space. Yeah, that's a good point,
0: right? Because in a movie like that, right, if you've got people hanging around, they're sort of witnesses to whatever action is happening, and which is important to have, you know, like witnesses actually add like levels of of uh of of complications to a movie like that. Whereas, like, yeah, in a movie like this, you're right, like it's it's um kind of a different vibe like yeah that um in, in i think i, I, I think of when darkness falls i think of like the, the guy walking his dog in one scene and um that's a little bit different right than if you had a whole bunch of tourists like a big tour guide moving people through the through the town <laughs> area and it's like you know now you've got 30 yeah. people who've just witnessed the, the one character doing something
1: yeah and i mean it, you know you don't have to wait for anyone to kind of go through shot because you know that budget level you can't just shut down a whole you know section so you know they didn't get bothered by anyone so that was an advantage but you know from the perspective of renegades it was difficult but you know they did a really great job I think of you know getting some nice locations and you know making the best of the fact that there were still some restrictions in you know how much crew you could have and how much time you could spend in places.
0: Yeah I I, again I think that by having such a great story and a such a fun cast and and you know has you know such fun performances i think it 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 elevates it beyond those restrictions um i think you know, yeah i think without those elements maybe you do focus on the restrictions more but you know when it, when it's billy murray you know hamming it up and he shoots at somebody it's okay that, that for me at least that, that it's cgi and not like real practical effects because he's just so much fun to watch that the, the rest of it is sort of secondary for me. Um, and so, yeah, I think obviously, yeah, if, if they if, you know, everybody had their druthers, they, w- they would want to be able to kind of do the full extent of the production that they could. But I think with the characters involved, I think it definitely kind of carried it over the, the line for that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, we, we kind of wanted that cosmopolitan feel, that city feel so you know that kind of that dictates where we need to you know film something so you know we need to film in a pub like an old school pub and uh you know these clubs and things so you know we need we knew from the offset that we would be quite limited in what we could do you know practically but you know covid kind of you know exemplified that even more sort of exaggerated those restraints um but I think that would probably be something that would be in mind in the sequel where we might, you know, take it elsewhere. So uh, where we can maybe have a bit more destruction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing I liked about
0: the use of London in this film is that, you know, I think we, we always talk about some of these these real big world cities like, you know, London, New York, um, you know, uh, Paris, where the, 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 the city is itself a character in the film. And yeah. Yeah, and I, I really like the approach here, where it's like they would—you just constantly between scenes, you'd have these establishing shots that I think you know maybe we have been done with a drone, where um, you just see this beautiful London cityscape that's sort of like the one that everybody knows when they think like, oh, oh, a friend of mine's going to London for the weekend. Yeah, I just see this beautiful, you know, the the London Bridge and 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 you know going across the Thames and and all of that, and I, I, they would be sort of that establishing shot of this beautiful, you know, uh. uh uh, tourist version of London that everybody expects. And then you go down to street level and it's human trafficking or it's, you know, guys getting ready to, 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 have a shootout. And I think even then, like you said, almost like the location, the limited location area almost helped in a sense, because it's like, like the, the club that, that, that Lewis Mandalore's character has, where you've got Nick Moran and Paul Barber going into, to do surveillance it actually looks like a nice club from the outside. Uh, if I was on a tourist trip to London, my group walked by there. I wouldn't think that anything nefarious was happening inside there. Uh, so I I, I really like that juxtaposition there, that the way that, that that London was used in the film.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think we you know we wanted to do something that was a bit different. So, you know, generally London films, they're kind of like these, you know, quirky romance films or rom coms, or they're the kind of you know, gritty crime gangster film, and they're all a bit samey. So this kind of international flavor action film, but set, you know, in London and the kind of back streets of London, I think you know it gives it a bit of character. Yeah, it, it feels. I think it feels more
0: like like I think partly because I think more films are being made in in the UK without sort of compromising um the the British aspect of them. I think avengement may have been the first one like that that was just you know it was it was made strictly as a as a uk movie as as a, as a you know as a british movie that it didn't matter what american audiences if they would have trouble with it being to that level um and i, I feel like there's kind of more movies like that being made where it's like i don't know if there's th- th- that's sort of a thing from distributors where they think like i don't know if we can market this movie in america because it doesn't have enough for americans to to like I, don't, I, I kind of feel like there's more movies being made that w- with less concern about what the American audiences are going to think about it.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've, you know, from doing a lot of the low budget horror films I've done that they're made in Britain with, you know, a British production company. But because they're sold to an American distributor that there's always this kind of prerequisite that you need to have American characters in. And for the, for the most part, they have to be played by British actors because you're using kind of local talent. Um, and, you know, sometimes it can be a bit awkward where you're, the, the film seems unsure of itself. And I've had this with a few of my sort of horror films, you know, when I read reviews where people are confused whether it's taking place in the UK or whether it's taking place in America. And if it's taking place in America, it doesn't look like America at all. Um, so it can be difficult. Whereas I think we wanted to em- we want to embrace the kind of British style and the sensibilities. Um and then obviously we had that benefit of being able to have these established kind of uh well-known stars. So even, you know, some of the the British stars like Nick Moran, he's got kind of he's fairly well known in the States anyway. So you know, people respond to that, and then obviously everyone knows Lee Majors and Danny Trejo. So you know that's a benefit, but I think you know setting in London, you know, brings this kind of unique feel to have this kind of movie. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I'm thinking you know just in terms of
0: like you know movies that have come out recently. So, so it was like sort of *Avengement* maybe 2019 is kind of like the first one, but then I think of like um the *I Am Vengeance* movies um, that that Ross Boyask did with um yeah where um they You know, uh, both of those really have an English, you know, UK feel to them. Um, You know, Skin Traffic um, that that Gary Daniels did was another one that really, really felt, even though there were American actors in it, um, which, again, I I agree with you there sometimes. I think they they kind of mitigated it a bit um, with, you know, having Michael Madsen and and Eric Roberts, uh, Daryl Hannah in it. But but it's still like it's it's still very, you know, Gary Daniels is in in England, which I, I, I really liked seeing him. Um, in that space like that. and in here, like with this movie with with nemesis, there's a sense I, I, I don't know. i I feel like dis- uh, film distributors, they 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 should trust that Americans are okay. I mean, you know, BBC America, it's like there's tons of programming, you know that that's available <laughs> from the tons of Americans watch and and really enjoy. um, you know, I guess there's probably a sense, right that like if if it's going to be, BBC um, in America, it's either got to be like niche Doctor Who stuff for sci-fi fans, yeah. or like a Downton Abbey kind of thing that that Americans won't watch anything else. And I don't, I just don't. I, good film is, you know, good cinema is good cinema. And I think, you know, a movie like this, I, it, you know, or Avengement or whatever it is, it doesn't have to be made for Americans for Americans to like it. I think we. You know, at least I'm you know, maybe just speaking for myself as an American. Maybe I'm I, I shouldn't be speaking for all Americans. Maybe um because I, I do remember when Avengement came out that I saw some reviews where Americans were like, I don't understand what they're saying in the movie. So maybe, maybe not everybody can 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 appreciate it. But I think a movie like this, it it, it doesn't have to be compromised for American audiences. I think it's almost like let the American audience come to it uh, and trust that we will come to it.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think so. That's that's always been my thought about it, that, you know, if you're putting yourself in unsure footing with what you want to do with the film, then, you know, you're going to lead to sort of... It's going to be more of a problem than, say, just having a British film set in Britain and they've all got British accents. But I think, um, you know, the distributors did have one little note, you know, when, when they were seeing the final film, that... Uh, some of the kind of the the dialogue was a little bit they they couldn't quite understand maybe some of the slang um we didn't really put that much in it we were quite wary of that from the beginning anyway so you can't always win but i think as long as you keep your dialogue fairly neutral don't have too much kind of you know very distinct slang from certain places um it's 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 a good way to do it i think um you know having that kind of, you know the outsiders what you know from the international stars that are coming into sort of london with their characters i think that kind of adds something to it so you know if we were if we were trying to sort of mimic new york say and film it in london it just wouldn't have worked
0: yeah and that, that that's definitely something i know um i i remember i was talking with um uh uh francis rizzo the third who does um a, Val Kilmer co- podcast, I was on with him. We're talking about uh, Diplomatic Immunity, I think it was, or Double double Identity, or something. It was the one that Val Kilmer did where he was um, mistaken for somebody else. He was like a sort of, it was like a medicine Sans Frontières kind of thing that he was doing in Romania. Um, but the, the last scene is supposed to take place in New York, and it's definitely not New York City. It's just, you know, they they sort of got a mock-up of what a subway station looks like, and then the rest of it was just sort of as it was. And, and of course, you know, Francis uh, is from you know, from Long Island, so, of course, you know, he grew up near New York City, so he recognizes it better than anybody. It's like, yeah, it's just very obvious that that's not what it is. Or I know um, I've seen Boston, it's a city that I grew up near. Um, it's, you know, shot in Montreal a lot, or even like Maine, the state I grew up in, is shot in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And it's just really obvious to be like, there, there's no place in Maine that, that has like a, a three-lane highway going through the, the middle of the city. There's no city big enough like that in Maine, um, that kind of thing that you pick up on. So I, I agree. I think, you know, but it's definitely a city like London, again, being this sort of real-world city that everybody recognizes. I think there's there's only a handful of cities like that that you can use in in, in the world. But when you 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 know when you use a city like that again, it it it's a character unto itself, and and yeah, trying to replace London for New York definitely is is a really hard sell because they're they're just both such big cities that are so distinct that, um, yeah, it's um it's I I, I I agree with you there that it's just, it's not something that looks right. It it's something that the, the audience will pick up on and and understand right away. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. I think you know. You know, we wanted London to be a character. We wanted to kind of have a different kind of movie um, set within it. And, you know, one that had that international appeal, um, you know, and make the most of it, because London is also a very cosmopolitan city. So, you know, if you've got, you know, Lee Majors in there and you've got Danny Trejo is in London, um, even though we filmed his bit in L.A. Yeah. Um, so we did get away with it with that one, that that particular moment. But, you know... It makes sense to have, you know, these cosmopolitan characters throughout the city.
0: Yeah, and I think the Danny Trejo element, um, having him, his character be not only be in London, but also be someone who's very familiar with London. He's almost like an adopted son of London and in, in, in his character in that way. I thought that also did a really great job of mitigating Again, that idea of xenophobia with the outsiders invading an area to have him be someone who isn't an outsider um, because yeah, a lot of American movies would have had him be part of the Mexican gang that's invading. You know, um, actually, I think I think Recoil was a movie like that. Um, not not the Recoil with Gary Daniels, but um, the one that had um, that it was Steve Austin. I, I want to say that he might have been in that film, um, but I, I can't remember. But but yeah, I think that that idea it also kind of helped with 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 part of that process that like you said it made london more of a cosmopolitan city and it made the invaders not be invaders who are invading based on ethnicity or language or something like that but invading because they don't have the shared set of values that the gangs in london have
1: yeah i mean that was exactly it yeah and that was another you know important thing about why we wanted um you know, Danny's character to be kind of on the side of the renegades.
0: Yeah. And it was, I, I really liked the way it came in where, where he's, you know, him and Ian Ogilvy are are talking. It's almost like, you know, Ian Ogilvie's going to him for information. Um, and, and then of course there's a, you know, he's used in, in the plot at the end and sort of how we get to, to the end of the film. I won't I won't go into that too much just because it, it is... I mean, it's not too much of a, p- a twist, but, uh, you know, again, I'll kind of let it happen organically for people watching the movie. Um, but again, it was... it was, I, I think with Danny Trejo, a lot of times he gets attached to movies kind of similar to the way he was here, and it doesn't always feel organic with the way he's put in the movie. It's just like, okay, well, we can, you know, slap Danny Trejo on the tin and, and call it good. And and I guess I, like I, I really appreciated the way he was incorporated in the film here. And it seemed like he... I mean, I don't think that he ever mails it in when he does his roles. I think no matter what the role is, he comes in and does it as well as he can. But yeah, there was a sense of the way, like he really seemed to 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 relish being in this film here.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, they actually shot it in his backyard, so <laughs> I think from that you know perspective, he was probably quite chilled and relaxed about doing it and just enjoyed you know having a day's filming at the time. Yeah, yeah, he, he, it was, I mean,
0: it's, it's one of those things I think, um, you know, we, there's so many, like, especially, again, think about like movies like, like, you know, Seagal does or Bruce Willis does where they don't do their, their reverse shots. Um, so, you know, that the actor is not acting in the same scene as, as that person. And when you're watching it, it, it sometimes feels a little bit off. Um, it's funny how with this one here with Ian Ogilvie and 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 Danny Trejo, it, it, the two of them felt like they were having a fun conversation between two people who had known each other forever. Um, and I, I, I don't, I, I appreciated that kind of that element that they were able to bring to it, that it was, you know, it, it didn't feel like two people that were just sort of in separate locations talking to, to, you know, whoever is 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 sitting across from them that no, that they, these were two guys that knew each other for a long time, had a, a shared history or had a, had a history of some sort and um, were just sort of you know, chatting with each other. I I really appreciated that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the advantages there as well, which helped, is that Ian Ogilvie was actually over there at the time. So they're actually they are they're sharing physically sharing the scene, which helps the dynamic. Um, and I think yeah, that is that would have worked better than you know having them filming their parts separately on you know separate continents.
0: Yeah, so I didn't know that. So they actually were were together, and and so he was in the states at the time. Um, was yeah. was Nick Moran in the states for any of it too, or was he? Oh, just in England the whole time.
1: No, he was he was fully in the UK. So Ian Ogilvie actually lives out in the states. Um, so effectively, Ogilvie was there with Trejo when they filmed. Uh, I think they filmed around about September twenty twenty. And then the rest of the film was shot around about May time, I think, 2020, 2021. Um, and then that's when everyone else sort of came in. So there was just this uh, sort of two week block where Daniel filmed all the US stuff, which was uh, Trejo, Peré and uh, Tiny Lister. But yeah, you know, because he lives out there, he was able to kind of get over there and uh, do his scene. So that yeah, that maybe
0: maybe that's part of why it felt more organic than 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 those kind of scenes do. Though I mean, Michael Perret, of course, he's talking on a phone with um, yeah you know, Janine Nourissier. They're they're in separate locations, and that one also felt. Um, natural in a sense that, like he, again, he, you know, he seemed to enjoy the part. But um, yeah, I think even just sort of hearing the story of sort of how the film was put together, I think, again, it, it's very common, I think, in, in with movies like this that are sort of done piecemeal, that when you get to the finished product, it doesn't feel like one natural, cohesive thing. And the fact that this did, despite the fact that the, the, the challenges that were there, I think is, again, testament to sort of the the, the investment that everybody had involved with it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, what Jonathan and uh, Janine have done is pretty remarkable, really, because, I mean, you know, they made, you know, Nemesis was pretty much one of the only films in Britain being made, you know, around about lockdown time. Uh, so, they, you know, they were under heavy restrictions and then Renegades is being made in, you know, similar, not quite as bad, but similar circumstances. So, you know, it's quite remarkable that they've managed to get these two films out, you know, around that period of time.
0: Yeah, and, and, and both, like, really, really quality movies. I mean, again, Nemesis is a, it's, I don't want to say it's a very different movie um, from this, but it's, it's definitely definitely a different feel to it. Again, it's, like, got that slow burn aspect, which, uh, you know, this movie did have a little bit of that slow burn to it, I think, especially initially or early on, but it, I think as an action movie, one thing I, I appreciated was that it was it was used in a kind of a, in a way where it was like, it would kind of build up to things, but it didn't have the same kind of longer build up that you would get like in a Nemesis or like, you know, in, in especially in a, When Darkness Falls. Uh, was that something too for you where like you were kind of writing those aspects into the film and then maybe Daniel was sort of, you know, figuring out tonally how to, how to make them work?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of that, yeah. But I think, you know, from the off, we kind of knew what we wanted to do um, in terms of making this, um you know kind of ensemble action film that kind of was like a throwback to sort of canon films and uh you know pm films so we kind of we always had that in mind and then you know throughout the process where we did you know seven or eight drafts you know some things we think you know we, we might change something um and then you know something changes in the cast or like a location changes or you know we suddenly you know a month later look back and think well that still doesn't work so then we change it again um <clears throat> so it's just um again you know some of these films might be you know generally it might be something that's written and then within a couple of months it's going to production and then you know it's kind of churned out so i think you know we did with some of the, the the delays actually did benefit the film in the end? Because we had that longer process of development.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard, right? Because I think probably every movie right, that you make, you want to be able to give it as much time and attention as possible. But it's just sort of the reality, especially, you know, I think I, I know at least in America, as, as, as you know, for from, from myself, too, it was, it was like a learning experience for me when I started doing the site, you know, my 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 blog site back in 2007, um, and also talking to other people that you know were, were cinephiles like me, that that uh, we we grew up with this idea of of this sort of auteur-driven cinema, that you know that this you know director, maybe like a Martin Scorsese, or even like kind of further back like an Igmar Bergman or a, a Kurosawa, they come in with a vision. And they're just allowed to sort of let the vision grow and they can take as much time as they need on making it they can take as much time as they need to to edit it and all of those kinds of things and you know now i've understood the better reality of filmmaking that it, that's not really how it works that most of these most movies especially you know in the direct-to-video sphere they aren't our are tour driven they're maybe distribu you know uh, distributor driven or there's a line producer that's sort of keeping everything in in a certain way and the shooting schedule is really quick and often you know has to move because of you know whether it's getting the actors involved like you know certain sets maybe you only have them for certain times all those kinds of things that there are a lot more restrictions involved and so it's like you'd like to be able to take that kind of time you like to everybody would like to be curacao and just take as much time as they need to on their movie Um, but the reality isn't there so it's like you said in this case maybe you you had more time than you normally would um, on a production like this
1: yeah definitely I think you know we We got to this we got the scripts pretty much to a point where we want we you know that we wanted it, so beyond a certain point it would only sort of change if you know we got a new actor in a certain role and then we would kind of craft for them um, but yeah, I think that process was enjoyable um, We probably had about a year between because you know the bulk of the shoot. Um, happened probably a year or so after we began on the script. So, yeah, that that kind of year of being able to kind of dip back in every now and again and like tweak here and there was pretty useful.
0: Yeah, I imagine it would like it would give you know like like so so maybe even thinking like like um, Janine's character because obviously she would have been sort of at at an advanced you know, an earlier stage right, knowing the part and knowing what she was going to do that she would have more time to maybe even think about like oh what if i do it this way or what if i play it like this or or something like that that i guess in a normal course of things right an, an actor is going to get the script kind of closer to when they're shooting and they don't have as much time to delve into how they would approach the character
1: yeah definitely and you know as we've said you know that role itself kind of evolved throughout the process you know beyond what it was initially so you know, had we shot maybe you know, I think they, they'd always envisioned shooting a lot earlier than it ended up being. But I think, you know, had they shot a bit earlier, maybe her character would have been less developed than it was in the, the final film. Um, same maybe with some other characters. Um so yeah, I think, you know, in the end we kind of benefited from that extra that extra development time. And I think, you know, we've had some nice reviews as well, which has been uh, you know including yourself as well which we, you know thank you very much uh, so yeah we did benefit from that in the end I think
0: yeah I think that is uh, it, you know and I, I guess maybe from, from my standpoint you know in, in the review that, that I wrote I think yeah it was definitely there probably are aspects of it that I liked because it, like you said it, it you were able to take more time with it and and develop things further I think that that helps I think the biggest thing for me that that I really enjoyed about the movie is that it just Feels like there's an earnestness and a and a care about the movie that I think even if you were on a tighter schedule, like even if you, you know, had to do this you know quicker, I think that part of it still would have would have shown through, which I think that's a piece that I think when it comes to sort of the the churn and burn approach to DTV that I see a lot, that I, I almost feel like distributors maybe, you know, I think their 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 mindset is quantity over quality in the sense of like if we can get five Bruce Willis films on a streamer site and you know, if somebody just picks one of the five, at least they're picking one, and we, you know, we can kind of offset those those different you know choices there. I think from a a, a movie watcher standpoint, there's something refreshing about going into a movie where it has that sort of that care and earnestness and, and and love really to it. That, like I said, it was you know action fans making a movie for action fans. As an action fan myself, like I feel like you, you kind of almost feel appreciated, I guess, as you're watching the film.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's always considered by distributors. And, you know, I kind of get it in the the landscape where, you know, streaming doesn't have the same kind of payouts that, you know, DVD did and particularly what VHS did. So you're almost having to make, you know, five movies a year to, you know, make the same as what you might have made from one one film, you know, 30 years ago. So, um, you know, it is tough, but, you know, We, you know, we have to consider that we're making a product, too, but we also want to make something that's good and that, you know, people will, you know, want to watch again. Hopefully, anyway.
0: Yes, no, no, this one definitely. I I think this one more than Nemesis has a more of a rewatchable quality because Nemesis, it's like once you've seen it once, um, you know, if you're going back to watch it, you're going back, I think, strictly for for the performances, because once you once the story has evolved and you've seen it kind of play out, then when you watch it the next time, maybe you're you're looking for things that you might have missed the first time, but you you, you kind of know what's going to happen. Whereas in this movie, you know, yes, there there are some elements of the film that might be you know uh, up for you know, I guess uh, they, they could be you know, suspenseful, but for the most part, you kind of go in knowing what you know. Once you, once the story starts to unfold in the beginning, you kind of get a sense of where it's headed, and I think that 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 lends itself to more rewatchability in the sense that like. If I go in and watch it again, I already kind of knew watching it the first time beyond a few elements, what was going to happen. And I'm just watching it for these fun performances. And I think that that sometimes helps in a movie um, is with when, 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 when the story is sort of a, a simpler aspect to it. Um, yeah, you're kind of able to watch it more. And I think this is definitely that that kind of movie, I think for me, where it's like, I, I think people, you know, uh, I think that you definitely could have fun watching this one and, and seeing these performances again and again.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Well, well, I really hope so. So we've been quite happy with the response so far. Um, So, yeah, long may it continue. Hopefully we'll get a a similarly nice response when it comes out in the UK.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think for for people listening to this that, you know, um, that are in the the UK, I think this is a movie that just I I think it's just it's just a fun movie. And I think it, it. that sounds like such an easy thing to pull off to make a movie fun, but I I, I also think too like I, I know um a lot of my friends sometimes would use fun as almost a reductive thing like well the movie wasn't that good but it was fun you know and and that's not kind of what this is this is this is more like in a way that there's a a, a, a a I don't know how to explain it but the the fun is is in seeing the the performances and and seeing the story develop in, in a way that. You just don't always see in modern action movies I think that 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 i I really appreciated.
1: yeah, I think you know we just wanted to make something engaging and fun um where you could get behind the characters and uh you know they used to make these kind of films in the eighties where you know they would be here there to entertain you really, so um. You know, the film doing well could be a consequence of the film being enjoyable. Whereas, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of the times these days, it's, you know, this is even in mainstream movies as well, but it's all about, you know, pushing out products and you're not, you're not that concerned if people enjoy it or want to go and revisit it. Yeah, yeah,
0: I, and I think that's a huge piece here. I mean, I, I on Twitter one time um, recently, actually a little bit before this film came out, um, somebody had put up a poll about like oh, which, you know, classic uh, production company would you want to re- revise, you know, I think or, or revive, and I think it was like you know PM Ken, and, you know, kind of the, the the usual suspects from that time, and um, Jonathan Sokat was actually in that thread, and he was like, you know, hey, we we think we're we're already reviving it with with Shogun, and. I think that's true. Only I think there's something a little bit more, a little bit more special going on with 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 Shogun that is even kind of taking it to a, kind of a different level from what what you know. Like you know, from a PM standpoint, right? You know, obviously it, it's hard to compete nowadays with budgets, with the car flips, and um, you know, all of that kind of thing. But yeah, also too, I don't think I I can't think of a PM film that had a, a kind of an ensemble cast that this has, where you had. Everybody getting the kind of material they did that just had a, a lot of fun on screen. I think there's a an attention to the the story and development here that you generally wouldn't get in a PM flick, and I think that's an area where I think where, where I think Shogun is is even sort of doing a better job in that sense. That I think almost like you know wanting to be another PM is almost maybe selling uh, Shogun short in that sense. That like um that there's there's even something better happening here. I think especially with the the names that that Jonathan and and, and now Daniels really are able to bring and the performances that they bring in a movie like this it's yeah it just it, it takes this this kind of movie to a different level for me
1: yeah i mean i i'd like to think so i think that's also you know do you know just generally in the sort of the dtv landscape you can't do what you used to do you know when pm were make you know as you say making those films where there would be 10 car flips and you know 20 <laughs> explosions in the film um you know, we, you can't bring that level of, a, of action, but what you can do is, you know, make the stories engaging. Because you know, even as much as I love PM, I might watch some films and then you're almost wanting to skip to the action. Where <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but you know, we wanted to make engaging characters that you you know were likable and have interesting kind of dynamics. Uh, so that was very much what we were kind of leaning on with this one.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's another point maybe to make about this movie is that there there isn't a scene that uh, you know like a dialogue driven scene um, that feels like it goes on too long, but also that isn't like I don't know if compelling is the right word, but isn't entertaining. Uh, I think it's probably the best way. Like you know again, um, there's the scene where the guys have made the decision that you know Nick Moran has sort of convinced them like okay let's go uh, get revenge for for Lee Majors and they're sitting at the pub at, at You know Ogilvie's pub that, that he has and they're kind of going through like what they have for weapons. And and that scene is just a, a ton of fun. And and I think without the performances there and I think without the the writing and sort of sort of the way it moves along, I think that's the kind of scene that you I've seen films either do too long or do in a way that isn't as engaging. And it's sort of one of those scenes that really comes together and works. And there isn't any actual action in that scene, right? There's no, you know, nothing's being blown up or anything like that. But yet it's it's a fun scene. It's not a kind of scene where I'm like, like you said, I'm not like, okay, let's just get on with it and, you know, get the guys in the car and have them go blow up a, a, one of uh, Lewis Mandelore's clubs. It was a fun scene that I, I enjoyed watching a, as it unfolded.
1: Yeah, I mean, those were the the scenes that I particularly enjoyed writing the most. Um, And it was, you know, they're the kind of scenes that really kind of make you engage with the characters and, you know, really make you wanna see them win at the end, basically. Yeah, Yeah, which is, it's it's, it's the most important piece
0: of it, I think, you know, this was a, you know, there's a movie that I I reviewed recently for the site called Vendetta, that was like one of those sort of newer um, uh, Bruce Willis films. And it it kind of it so it didn't have the 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 group dynamic that this had, but it had the similar hero dynamic in the sense that you have the former special forces guy. In fact, it was uh, Clive Standard who also is is a uh, from England, but was playing an American in that film. Which again, another thing that it seems like in American distributors, like they they tend to want uh, UK actors to use American accents, which I, you know, um, I don't quite get because as, as Americans, it makes the character more unique in that sense if you do that, but, you know, if, if you have them use their natural accents. But anyway, um, but in that movie, you had Theo Rossi playing the bad guy. He was just a lot of fun as a bad guy. He was, you know, like we talk about chewing up scenery and and, and playing this really, really uh, rough guy, but then the the hero wasn't compelling at all. And I think... you know, the hero was very one note. It was just, you know, here he is with his beard, he's grimacing and he's got his former special forces background and he wants revenge. And it's almost like you had the same story, right? The same idea of, of wanting, you know, revenge against baddies, but the execution was just with, with, um, with, with, Renegades was just so much better kind of all around that, again, it was one of those things that there was never a sense that I was ever going to root for Louis Mandalore the way I was rooting for Theo Rossi in in, in (laughs) Vendetta. It it was just never a question of that, that it was I was always going to root for these guys. I I always wanted to see them succeed in the end. And uh, even though they have an underdog quality to them, there's almost a sense, too, that the way that they were written, that... There was an underdog quality, but also like a these guys aren't going to know what hit them quality as well. Like they don't know who they messed with quality, which I, I liked too. That you were able to sort of mitigate those two vibes of it. That we we want to see these these baddies get their comeuppance and see it at the hands of these heroes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So that was very much in in my mind when I was writing that. You know that I wanted them to. You know they're over the hill but they're still competent so that was very important to sort of not just make too many kind of old jokes throughout the thing (laughs) you want to sort of reference it but not you know overdo it and uh yeah we wanted this kind of underdog sense but in the end we you know we want it to seem um feasible that these guys can beat mandalore and his gang
0: yeah, and I mean it is—it's an interesting thing because I, I know um, recently I was on the Exploding Helicopter podcast with um, with Will uh, from Exploding Helicopter, and we were talking about the movie Soldier Boys, where um they you know uh, Michael Dudikoff brings a bunch of kids from a, a juvenile prison to uh, to Vietnam to fight, and they're they're suddenly trained. But I think there is an aspect of it that you know this idea that that you because know, a lot of times gangs I think maybe in in, in real life maybe they do employ former uh, military personnel. But for the most part, right, there's a certain tactical training that that you would get in special forces in the military that, you know, Louis Mandler's gang wouldn't have like they wouldn't understand. And I think this, this movie does a good job of that, of like, yes, these guys are underdogs and they're they're older, they're over the hill, but they have an understanding. And of course, also to bringing Nick Moran's character, who's younger in, I think also helps the sense that, like, you feel like he's kind of almost the the. The, the, the maybe like the anchor for the team or he's he's sort of the 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 one who's most capable in that sense but i, I like the, the way the film kind of did that that like these guys kind of know how to go into an environment and take it over in a way that the gang is not expecting because they've never really encountered anything like that before
1: yeah exactly so, you know that's what we were going for and then obviously Nick being a little bit younger um you know he was he's the one that you know, has the kind of toe-to-toe fist fight at the end. So, you know, from that that regard, that was more logical. So we we were very careful on what we had each individual kind of doing. Um and then we obviously we knew that Nick Moran was, you know, with with youth on his side a little bit more. And then uh he could be the one that has the you know the physical scraps. Yeah I, yeah
0: I think of like like Paul Barber's scenes in the film um and again the one where he's at the bar with Nick Moran where they're doing reconnaissance or when he goes into the club right like he's acting like he's a um uh, uh, a John going in to patronize this this club with a uh, uh human trafficking and and sort of the way he's interacting with the woman um in that scene and and um I, I should have her name up but I, I, I am excited think like she was recently spotlighted on the uh the um Instagram, by the Shogun Instagram, uh, her character, um, yeah, I think it's a uh, uh, Laura Pictet, I think is her name. Um, uh,
1: yeah, playing Sophia.
0: Sophia. Yeah, yeah, and so like her interaction with Paul Barber, I think you know again it. It was one of those things where, like you said, like, you know, obviously age can be a factor in these movies. And I think you, you run into that that situation with like Liam Neeson in Taken where it's like they're just cutting scenes together to make it look like he's, he's doing all of this stuff and you almost don't know if you can believe it or not. Whereas, you know, Paul Barber gets a scene here where he's interacting with her. Um, again, it's more of like a strategic vibe than it is uh, uh, an out-and-out action kind of thing. And he's of course bringing a kind of fun to it that again, like you wouldn't think that a, a hero interacting with a, a victim of human trafficking could have any kind of fun or or levity to it. But it worked. It all worked in that sense. And again, you're just because part of it is I think is because you know Paul Barber on the inside is getting the gang ready to come in and sort of take this whole group down. So you know all of these women are going to be kind of freed from the situation eventually. Um, maybe that 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 helps with that. But. It, yeah, it, it worked in a way that I, I don't think if you had told me this is what I, this is what the scene is going to look like, I'd be like, I don't know if that, that would work that way, but it, it but it all definitely did.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we, we were very careful, you know, throughout in each set piece that we made it feel believable. We, you know, gave it a sense of being like a caper as well, so that, you know, there's a slight sense of fun to each little set piece as well. Yeah. And and, yeah, again, it's just it's the kind of thing that I think,
0: you know, again, thinking maybe another juxtaposition is that that acts of violence movie with Bruce Willis, where it was that was, you know, again, another movie about human trafficking. And it was all much more grim and serious, which, you know, again, human trafficking is not a fun thing. It's not (laughs) something that should be treated lightly or or fun. Um, But I think when you when you introduce human trafficking as an element, again, it's it's that kind of batty in a can approach where you you. There's nothing worse than that as a baddie than doing something like that. So definitely we want to see him taken down. And so then I think there's that challenge of being able to introduce moments of levity when you've got something so serious as that. And I think that's something that this movie pulls off really well between, you know, the writing and the scenes and then the actors and the performances to, to just keep the movie fun throughout, even if that's going to be the construct that we want to see this baddie taken down for.
1: Yeah, very yeah, very much so. so. You know this was always something that we really wanted to sort of pull off um you know to you know we want the film to be fun, not too kind of grim and uh you know we want we wanted to to feel logical in the way that they you know they take the bad guys down
0: yeah yeah and it, it, it definitely it all comes together i think that this this movie just completely works um you know as as we're we're kind of Running up on time here, Tom. Is there anything else about the film that we didn't mention that you wanted to mention?
1: I think um, I just wanted to briefly mention Lee Majors. I was was really sort of obviously he's so well known, and you know everyone knows him from TV, and you know you know lots of movie appearances. It's just what he kind of brings to the film is so you know fantastic. Um, He's just got that kind of gravitas and that charisma that. You know, so few actors have. It's almost a little bit, you know, in the same way that Harrison Ford has that real kind of power as well. Um, you obviously Lee May just had that a little bit more infamy in TV than rather than the movies, like Harrison Ford did. But he just has that, you know, real kind of strong screen presence, and I think, you know, he's kind of effortlessly effortlessly cool in in the film. You know, you know. It's inevitable what's going to happen and, you know, that he's going to, (coughs) he's then going to be, you know, off the film to an extent. But his presence kind of continues to be felt throughout, I think. And I think that's another important thing that's, it's something we wanted in the script, but it's also something that you, you can't just write. It needs someone with that kind of level of gravitas to really, really pull off where you still, you still kind of feel his presence, you know, toward the end of the film, even though he dies you know, toward the beginning.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point because without that performance that he gives early on, there almost is no movie, right? Because it it you don't believe why these guys would be going in for this revenge piece. Uh, so yeah, that's a really great point that I I, I like. I so I forgot to mention is how how great he was in this because you're right that that presence that he brings early on it does really pervade the film throughout.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's like, you know, properly old school, you know, superstar. So (laughs) he's got that, um, you know, that really great screen presence. And I think, you know, he has such a strong presence in such a short amount of time that it kind of lingers through the film. And I think there's very few actors that could do that. So we're kind of blessed that, you know. He's a good friend of Jonathan's, I think. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, and and that's a good point too, because I think a lot of times these revenge movies, part of the reason why they don't work, is that you, the the, the motive for the revenge maybe sometimes <clears throat> fades, or or sometimes it's more like just a damsel in distress motive, like maybe the main character. You know, I think of Scott Adkins. I don't know how many movies he's done where he has a child who's been kidnapped that he has to go and do some job for the baddies. You know, he's being forced to because he's being manipulated or something like that. Um, you know, this is a situation where, yeah, somebody gets murdered early on and we we have to sort of, you know, feel that present. I mean, again, going back to that Vendetta movie where the main character's daughter is murdered early on and then his wife is murdered slightly after that. And it's almost just kind of like things that happen in the movie. Whereas, um, yeah, like you said, there's that inevitability that, that, that this is going to happen to him. But he's been so big to that point that I mean, I just think about the very first scene he has where he um finds Nick Moran sleeping on the park bench, and he sort of lifts them up and and it says, "Okay, you know, come, you can stay at my place. You can do it. you know, from the moment he has that scene, like you said, there's a presence there that 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 really just sort of perpetuates throughout the film,
1: yeah. So I think, you know, you know, we I knew sort of from the beginning that he would be in the film. So, you know, I could naturally write, you know, something to suit him and to really kind of, you know, hopefully have that. But then obviously, you know, you're hoping that he's on his A game, which, you know, he was always going to be because, you know, he's very good friends with Jonathan and Janine. So we knew he was going to bring his A game. And, uh, you know, he he's just got that really kind of, strong presence and i think that really benefits the film
0: yeah and it's strong presence too and almost like a, a in, in a paternal sense right that like he yeah. it, it, which i think is really 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 important to how the movie works and even though the guys on his team are his age you know he's the leader of the you know of the of that squadron um so in that sense it's he's more like their leader than their father but I think you know with Nick Moran's character and of course Patsy Kensit he his character is her father in in that but that sort of that paternal sense to it I think that is something that you see um in some really good movies that you know kind of involve revenge where it's like a, a sort of a community father character or community father figure or community mother figure is is murdered and the 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 community rallies around that person And I I got that sense here from him that he's a, his character was one that all the other characters had been so influenced by that they couldn't not carry this out.
1: Exactly. Yes. I mean, you know, we always knew that he would be playing that character in particular. Um, And, you know, that was a big part of the reason, not, you know, purely because of a limit in time, but, you know, we wanted it, you know, to have the impacts that it does, it's going to, It's always going to have the most impact if you've got the $6 million man, um, you know, as that kind of central figure who gets killed off.
0: Yeah, it's funny with him. Yeah, because again, yeah, you think of him as the the $6 million man. Um, Here in the United States, uh, one of the the retro channels, they do play $6 million man, but they also play uh, Big Valley, um, the Western that he did. And it's kind of funny to see him at a very young age in Big Valley, where he's, Like, you know, he's not this this paternal figure that he is now, but he still has that presence, you know, that he's still every time there's a scene, it's it's almost like when he steps into the scene, it's almost like there's nobody else in that scene with him. And of course, yeah, six million dollar man is an obvious one. But yeah, I think you're right that when you can get someone like him attached to a movie and have him play a role that is so, so vital, but yet so short on screen time. Uh, yeah, to have that pulled off, I think you're right. It was a very integral part of this movie that I don't think the movie works if he doesn't play this role and do it the way he does it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's very much it. Yeah. So, yeah, we were you know, delighted to have him on board and, you know, see him knock it out of the park.
0: Yeah, I, I yeah, as another great thing. I, I don't know, I guess I guess I missed him in talking about the movie because um he because again his, per, his character does uh, die off early on. And so then it's all the other characters or who, who are sort of developing around him. But like you said, he he his his presence never leaves the movie. It's always a, a part of what's happening in the film.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, that was, you know, very important, you know, a, a really big aspect of what we wanted in the film.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Now, anything else, anything else that we may have missed as we were uh, talking about this, that, that, uh, that you want people to to know about the movie?
1: Um, I think we've covered most of it, I think. Just, that yeah. you know, I'm really happy that people are enjoying it so far and hopefully they'll, you know, continue to do so. Yeah, I think this is just a movie that I mean, when I posted
0: about it on uh, especially on Facebook, I tend to get more uh, more more um, interactions on Facebook when I post it on Twitter, because I think just sort of maybe the nature of what, what's going on with Twitter right now. But a lot of people were responding like, wow, that cast like I need to, you know, just to see that cast or, you know, see what happens with that cast. And I think anybody who's going into it with that mindset this is definitely going to deliver. I think there's a lot of times when you see names on the tin, and then you watch the movie, and you're like, ah, eh, like I, don't, you know, I could have, you know, okay, Eric Roberts was sitting behind a desk for one scene. That's, you know, um, you know, even with Michael Pare, who only has that short scene, or Data Trae has a couple of short scenes. They're really good, engaging scenes, and 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 then of course the rest of the cast is they're exactly like what you you would think when you see their names listed. They're, they're exactly you think maybe even better than, than what you would be expecting for for them coming in
1: yeah and we just you know we just gave them the platform to you know really do what they do best yeah
0: yeah so I think so so right now in the United States you can get this on streaming um you can rent it uh, streaming and I think it's this is worth the rental money normal normally, normally I, I I push people to to wait to you know, for something to be free on a free streamer, but this is definitely worth going on Amazon and, and paying the 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 new release rental fee. I think this is a really great Saturday night action movie, I think, for people that are, are, are looking for something to watch. I mean, you can watch it any night of the week, of course, but I think this is a, a – a, don't, you don't always get a good – I think for me, at least, when it comes to a good Saturday night movie – very seldom is it a new movie that that I look at and go, "That's my Saturday night movie." Usually, it's something from the past. I'm usually picking up a, a you know an old one. So, for me to say that a, a a new movie is a good Saturday night movie, I think that should maybe tell people, that, you know, how much enjoyment they're going to get out of this.
1: Well, that's good to hear. Well, hopefully, you know, there'll be plenty more that feel the same. Yeah,
0: yeah, and then and then for people listening, um, so this this episode is going to be coming out before the uk release so if you're listening to this and it's before january 30th that's when when the um the uk streaming release will be and then february 6th it will be the dvd release is that correct
1: yeah that's correct yeah
0: yeah so for the physical media fans that's the key there i don't know in the united states if we're if a physical release um is is slated yet um because i know again there are a lot of people that like to, to get physical media uh,
1: i've not heard anything yet but i'm I'm sure that at some point there will be
0: yeah i think um you know at least for right now i think you know the 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 prime streaming uh price i think it's 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 worth the rental on 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 prime um for for people i think that's probably the main one i think in the united states i think we also um like with my cable company i can rent movies directly through my cable company as well um through xfinity so it's another way you, you can rent this but i think you know looking at a, a good saturday night you know cue this up maybe go to get you know some some i don't know some indian food um take out or something you know something, get a, get a, get a, get a pizza or something like that you kind of just do the whole shebang uh this movie is definitely worth all that so i think you know for audiences in america then i think um i, I think we do have some some german listeners in germany there is a dvd release
1: yeah so it's already out on dvd and blu-ray in germany
0: yeah. So, yeah. So, so it's definitely um available. And I think, I, I think everybody should check this one out. I think also too, kind of just in talking about, you know, independent film, I think this is, you know, it, for us as action movie fans, if we want to keep movies coming out that are like this, I think this, you know, for us to, to back a movie like this, it sends a message to distributors that like, this is what we should be looking for. This is, th- this kind of movie does work if you know, it, it doesn't, the, 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 the churn and burn approach maybe isn't as effective, um, you know, or, or I don't know. I think we, we could send a message by supporting movies like this. I think, and I think that's an important thing as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I Very think, cool. you know, they kind of live or die on how they do. And uh, I'm hoping that it, it does well.
0: Yeah. So I, I think for everybody out there. This is this is definitely something to check out. Um, it's definitely worth worth looking at. Um, yeah, Tom, uh, anything else? Anything else that you want to plug while, while we're still here?
1: Uh, no, I just say, you know, if you haven't watched Renegades yet, give it a watch. And then UK fans, it's just around the corner.
0: Yeah, and and definitely worth checking out. I, I would check it out as soon as you get a chance to. Um, and and it's definitely. I think even if, you know if whether you're watching by yourself or you gather up some friends to to, to watch it together, this is going to be a fun ride. I think you you know you 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 probably haven't had this much fun in an action movie in in a while. I think I would say um, this is this is going to definitely. Uh, 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 this is definitely going to do the trick for you for sure.
1: Well, I, I like to think so. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Well, well, thank you again for coming on, Tom. This was a really great conversation. It was really great to kind of get more insight sort of into to how the, the film went. So I, I always enjoy a, a conversation like this.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on again, Matt.
0: Good to talk Excellent. again. Yes. It was great talking with you as well. And um, yeah, anybody else? Uh, great. Uh, thanks for listening. And um, yeah, we'll talk soon. Bye everybody.